Welcome to the Green Edge podcast with Michael Cross and me, Fraser Harper. This is our update for the week ending 18th of August 2023. The relationship between the numbers 7 and 11 was considered so profound by the ancient Egyptians that they used it as the ratio between the base and the height of the Great Pyramid. A circle drawn around the pyramid's elevation has the same perimeter as that of its square base. And in our Green Edge post this week, we start with another couple of examples of squaring the circle, one from Leonardo with his Vitruvian man, and the other showing the relationship between the diameters of the moon and the earth, which is 3 to 11, by the way, that can only be described as coming from that great designer in the sky. All of which is our rather convoluted way of introducing the topic of this week's post, which is circular design. That's designed for the circular economy, which the Ellen MacArthur Foundation tells us is the next big thing in design. Now, the UK Design Council says we need to accelerate the speed with which we make design part of the solution, acknowledging that it has been a big part of the problem. So, Michael, it seems circular design is pretty important, would you say? Most certainly. And we can look at it in a number of ways. Well, if you just take the design economy in the UK, design economy employs the best part of 2 million people. That is a very big number. And then you look at those people who are indirectly involved in design, it adds another 2.4 million. So we're talking about a very large part of the economy, which is growing very strongly in which the UK is a major player. It's unfortunate that given the importance of the circular design, it is not featured strongly in the Green Jobs Delivery Group, for example, but it does feature very strongly in UKRI activities around the Centres for the Green Economy, featuring metals, plastics, chemicals, manufacturing, transport. So it is very, very much embedded and from the research innovation and research council's point of view is being supported at the current time. Well, we talked to the Design Council this week about the subject of circular design and we had a good conversation with Kat Drew, the council's chief design officer, who told us this. Our vision is a regenerative world for all, where people and planet are thriving together in a really inclusive way. And our mission is Design for Planet making sure that 1.97 million people working in the UK design community and the commissioners who commission them and policymakers are all able and equipped to be able to design for the good of the planet, to be able to regenerate rather than extract for it. And circular design is absolutely a critical part of that. We seek circular design when we define it as the redesign of products, services, places and business models to create a new circular economy where resources are kept in play for longer and longer. So rather than the traditional design process, which is quite linear, and we take materials often without even thinking about where they've come from, create them into new products, which people will dispose of at the end. Actually, we want to really think about the materials that we're using at the beginning and trying to limit those think about designing for disassembly and reuse so that once people have finished using a product the materials can be extracted back from that and returned and turned into something else which is of value and so it's at once a design process but it's also an economic process because this is about making sure that we've got the business models that allow that resource to continue to be valuable Michael, what did you pick up from our conversation with Kat? I think I'd like to say three things. One is 
don't use the word circular, use the word regenerative. And therefore, that takes us beyond circular design. So that was one. And Kat took us through seven examples of that during our conversation. The next point I'd say is around education in schools. The design and technology done at GCSE has dropped dramatically. Yet one of the figures that stuck with us was the fact that seven in 10 designers did design at GCSE. So if we aren't teaching it at schools, we'll undermine things. And the final point would be they are actively producing a green skills view of design through a large-scale activity involving a 1,000 designers. And the first results of that should be out in October. I stand corrected. So it's not circular design, it's regenerative design. It is. goes on forever and ever and ever. It's all just making a nonsense of my square in the circle pun, isn't it? Anyway, there we go. Now, one of the points we raise in our post this week is how circular design, which has a strong emphasis on design for longevity, or as we might say, building things to last, squares itself with, say, the fashion industry and all the fast fashion trends we've been seeing, particularly over the last few years. This is what Kat had to say about that. The fashion industry is realising this, and actually there's lots and lots of innovation happening across fashion. So there's the Institute of Positive Fashion that has been set up by the British Fashion Council to spearhead a lot of this. Over the last 15 years, we've seen fashion production double, but we've seen the number of garment uses plummet as you've seen the rise of fast fashion. But particularly in the last four or so years since the pandemic or during the pandemic, we've seen a kind of an explosion in different business models around repair, thrift and subscription. Actually, we're having a panel on this, particularly at our Design for Planet Festival on the 17th of 18th of October, which you can listen into. But to give you some examples, so thrift, there's been a huge interest in thrift, particularly luxury thrift and places like Vestair Collective bring together the best secondhand luxury brands, which you can buy at a fraction of the price. You've got things like Her Collective or Bundly, which are subscription services. So for example, I'm a recent mum and in terms of clothing, because babies go through clothing so, so, so quickly, Bundly is a great service where you pay a certain amount of money per month and you can choose the different clothes. And after three months or so, once they've grown too big, you send them back and you get another lot. Now, Kat mentioned in that last clip, the Design Council's upcoming Design for Planet Festival, which will be held at the University of East Anglia in Norwich on the 17th to the 18th of October. And among other notable speakers will feature the Ellen MacArthur Foundation on one of its panels. This year's theme for the festival is Collaborate, which is all about empowering cross-industry dialogue on responsible design between disciplines as wide-ranging as fashion, the built environment, energy and policy. In the more immediate term, I have designs on reminding you that you can find this week's post on greenedge.substack.com. And you can also find this podcast on all the major streaming platforms, including Apple, Google and Amazon. Now, I mentioned in that last piece the area of policy design, and many of you may already know that the UK government runs a blog on the subject, which tells us, and I quote, multidisciplinary policy design teams are changing how public policy is made. This blog is for anyone who is interested in how policymaking is being modernized. But we saw a letter this week that highlights an area where government policy might need a certain amount of redesign, Michael. Yes. 
But I'd like to put this in the context of the Green Jobs Delivery Group. Now, the Green Jobs Delivery Group has five task and finish groups, one of which is looking at local capacity and capability for net zero. So the ability to design and micromanage and detail and tailor a policy. Now, in the context of that, the leader of Tunbridge and Wells Council and also the portfolio holder for sustainability wrote to the Honourable Grant Shapps about their failed bid for Low Carbon Skills Fund Phase 4. Several things came out of that, but the primary point they're making is competitive allocation of funds is not a very productive use of time and capability. Only one in eight of the bids is successful. So if you do the maths of that, they're spending more money on making bids from the local authorities than the fund is actually worth, which seems a bit topsy-turvy. So it would suggest that there might be a better way of distributing these funds to actually raise a skills base in local areas, and we should be more honest about how we're allocating them. It's an excellent letter, which was circulated very widely by UK 100. And I think the point in the letter was that this wasn't even competitive. This was first come, first served. Which is bizarre, because they make in the letter at the very beginning is they had their colleagues waiting for the portal to open to upload their materials, which they did in the first 23 minutes of the portal being open. So if it was first come, first served, some people are obviously have got much faster connections to send their information into the centre. Easier to get a ticket for Blastonbury, I would have thought, if it's that kind of approach. Anyway, Michael, we hear from a lot of people that government competitions for funding are a frustrating way for local authorities to be operating and that they often depend on the skill of a small number of hard-pressed individuals who are savvy at putting the bits together. Yes, you'll wonder sometimes, is it allocation by capability and ingenuity than it is by need? And if there is a need in virtually every part of the UK, why isn't there an allocation system which is designed around overall need? That's a good point. Now, here in the UK, we hear numbers in the hundreds of thousands in relation to projections of new green jobs. But get this, we read a report this week from the Indian Skills Council for Green Jobs that says India has the potential to create 35 million green jobs by 2047. Furthermore, one of the two key recommendations of the report is that India should take advantage of its demographic dividend opportunity window, that's lots of young people to you and me, to, and I quote, leverage the global need for skilled human resources to help India and other countries achieve their net zero targets. We're already seeing that, Michael, in Germany, aren't we? We are, where the German government has been fashioning a deal, particularly for their solar industry, to have managed migration of upward to about 60, 65,000 Indians to join the German workforce. But then it's implied that they will then return to India reskilled and upskilled to help in their solar industry, which is growing at an impressive rate. If you look at the rate of investment in renewables and looking at relating that to electricity output, India is by far the fastest rate of growth at the current time. Uh, if you take the UK, we lag that quite badly. The reason for interest in India, though, is not just the scale. It's the speed at which they're doing some of these things. And therefore, there's always an opportunity to learn from people trying to tackle issues at scale and speed. And also, there's a huge opportunity 
particularly on the educational front, qualifications front for an export market for well-placed UK businesses. Now, the other recommendation of the report is that India should ensure just transitions for labour in traditional industries that are impacted due to shifts towards a sustainable economy. So we're hearing very similar language around just transition there, as we're seeing here in the UK and elsewhere in the world, aren't we? We are. And the challenge in India is absolutely enormous, given the disparities and inequalities that currently exist and the very fact that they actually do like burning coal. Thank you for listening to this Green Edge podcast. This podcast series accompanies the Green Edge newsletter, to which you can subscribe at greenedge.substack.com. The Green Edge is produced by Blue Mirror Insights, 